Hello, Thames Valley Church. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you guys again. I do hope that um, the last video was of some benefit to you guys around the coronation and the idea of God's kingdom, uh, the true kingdom that we all follow and worship. Um, just so you know as well, uh, I make it mentioned the last time, I'm sure some of you have heard of my channel called That Bible Guy. The reason I mention it is that I've had some ideas and thoughts of other lessons that have came about through today's lesson and the last lesson even. I get ideas all the time and sometimes I put stuff up on my YouTube channel called That Bible Guy. Um, there's many topics and things in my head. Plus, I'd also love to get your thoughts on things that you feel are relevant to, for today, questions that I could sort of cover, topics and sermons that I could cover. Uh, I think one of the things in my heart is equipping the young. That's uh, definitely something I feel very called to do and the reason why I set my channel up. But yeah, I was actually speaking in the southeast, uh, London there on Sunday past. And we were a uh, staff retreat was in Oxford. I was driving back with some Bola um, in the car and Tuxin pointed out a leisure centre when we were in the Thames Valley area where he had spoken, I think, before, many, many years ago. I'm sure maybe some of you are around to remember those days. Uh, maybe not, but um, I've been around a while. and Many of us have. So today what's going to cover is the power or power, for those not Northern Irish, power of God's kingdom. So I want to cover that today, and it is a follow-on from the last lesson, um, and some of it really comes from my own Bible study recently. I've been reading 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, now on the First Kings. But I'm sure many of us watched the coronation. Um, it really was a, a sight to behold. Um, was it 73 years or something since the last one, 1953 or something? Incredible. Um, something like that anyway and I, we had it on in the house we had it on in the background on my phone because we did the TV working in the kitchen um, so we had it on but there's so much pomp and ceremony and you really could see the power of the whole day and how organized everything had been and how well structured and everything had been and all the guards and the ceremony and how just how seamlessly everything seemed to go as far as I could tell anyway uh, and as I was watching all this you were kind of imagining what would it have been like to be part of that to be maybe more in the inner circle of the royal family. And funny, my own daughter was doing investigations recently about looking in the Arsernium Denning, um, about how far in line we stand to the throne. I think it was like, if, if 13,000 people passed away tomorrow, we might be in line for the throne. So there you go. Uh, I'm sure some of these might be closer than we are. Uh, but I actually happened to tell her, sorry, um, your surname, my granddad, it wasn't really my granddad actually, and that's I think my surname might be, should have been Bell. Anyway, um, but while the ceremony was on with the, the king being coronated, you know, the coronation was on, uh, there was a guardsman that yelled out a command. I Maybe you'd seen that I put this up on Facebook, but I was upstairs at the time and I left it all in the phone on in the kitchen. My daughter had heard it in the background, but she had heard this command of the guard shouting out, the, you know, around about the coronation time that the king was, you know, crying on the head sort of thing. And this shout, and she actually ran upstairs thinking that I was shouting at her, calling her up. Um, he did a rather large, large shout, so it, I'm not quite sure what that means in terms of how I normally communicate with her. But she ran up the stairs, I think a little bit worried because I, I, I was quite an angry shout, maybe. But I told her it wasn't me and it was all to do with the coronation. But I do hope you enjoyed watching that. and It was really a special ceremony. Um, but what I want to cover today is... The Bible does talk a lot about kingdoms and kings. It really does. Um, you see the, the monarchy developing throughout Scripture. You know, the people asked for a king, Saul, and there was David, and then Solomon comes around. And you see that, that there's a lot of foreshadowing as well about the idea of a kingdom and having a king and what that means and foreshadowing of God's kingdom through Jesus, who is our great king, as I talked about the last time. And I was recently reading about Solomon's kingdom. And I want to look at that today in terms of the correlation between Solomon's kingdom 
and the kingdom that we are under and the pomp and the ceremony and all the, the power of, of Solomon's kingdom. So in 1 Kings chapter 4, we're going to read verses 20 to 28. And this is all about Solomon's kingdom and really the greatness of his kingdom. It says in verse 20, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. That was a promise given to Abraham. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed fed cattle and a hundred sheep and goats as well as deer gazelles roebucks and choice fowl for he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river from tifsa to gaza and had peace on all sides during solomon's lifetime judah and israel from dan to beersheba lived in safety each man under his own vine and fig tree solomon had four thousand stalls for chariot horses and twelve thousand horses the district officers each in his month supplied provisions for king solomon and all who came to the king's table they saw to it that nothing was lacking they also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. So we get a big description here about Solomon's kingdom. And you'll notice the quantity of everything, the, the, the abundance of everything, and how there were people who made sure, as it says there uh, in verse 27, that nothing was lacking. This was what was known as a great time of peace and rest. So the time under Solomon here, unlike the time before and the time to come, was a time of great peace and rest. It was a wonderful time that everyone experienced God's hand, if you like. As in, the idea in people's mind was that this is what God brings. He brings peace, stability, and later on chapters, Solomon praises God for that peace. This was like God's plan for his kingdom was that his people would have rest and peace and that their needs would be met, as it says there, in abundance. Nothing would be lacking. Um, and you actually look on in 1 Kings 5 verse 3, it talks about the time before Solomon where it says in 1 Kings 5 verse 3, you know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord, his God, until the Lord had put his enemies under his feet. So Solomon talking to king of Tyre, Hiram, about needing cedars of Lebanon to build a temple. And he was sharing that this wasn't like this for my father. That it wasn't a time of peace at all. In fact, David had one battle after another and he was on the run for most of his life, half of his life at least almost. But that wasn't like that for Solomon. So God was praised for bringing about this time of peace that in a way was brought about by David's kingdom at that time. And it uses a phrase here um, in verse 25 that each man um, lived lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. So this idea that each man lived under his own vine and fig tree at a time of safety was this idea of independence for a peasant farmer freed from previous military oppression. So these farmers previously, they were being oppressed militarily by all the nations around Israel, but now they've been freed from that. But there is a a metaphor in this as well, though, this whole idea of, uh, it's understood that way, this living safely under your own fig tree is a metaphor to explain living under your own fig tree was then used to describe ideal conditions. So Solomon's kingdom brought about peace, safety, and rest, and this idea of ideal conditions. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? It makes me think of my traveling around Oxford and looking out at all the fields uh, and just how beautiful all the fields, just grass upon grass, which we have in Northern Ireland, of course, but just, you know, when you see it different in hills and trees and certain skyline, it was beautiful, field after field. I just imagined, um, and we actually were out on the day of the retreat in the morning and we were lots of cows and calves came over to us and reading scriptures about frolicking like, like the calves, but I'll not get into all that. But the idea here is that the people under Solomon's kingdom, Solomon's rule of Solomon's kingship, is that they had no worries. There was peace, 
and they were rich and there was an abundance of everything. As it says, there was nothing lacking. That was the, the nature of the kingdom that they experienced. And also, as we know, Solomon being the king was full of wisdom. So much wisdom that people came from all around just to hear his wisdom and bring cases to him. But even just to hear his wisdom, as we know, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came to see him. Um, we'll hear about that a bit more in a minute. But he was the wisest of all kings. Solomon was the wisest of all. That he was full of wisdom. The, the, the kingdom at this time then, the impression I'm trying to get over to us that we can see in the scriptures is the idea that this kingdom at the time was full of wisdom because of the ruler. They had riches, they had, they had peace, they had joy, happiness, and rest. Fabulous ingredients. They're, they're just perfect set of ingredients. And I know as I say that right now, what's going on in my mind is that's not quite what we experience even today. Even in God's kingdom today, it doesn't feel like that. There were other times in my 23-year history as a Christian they felt more peaceful than they do right now. Now, we have got to learn to, to deal with circumstances so that we can have peace regardless of the circumstances. But nonetheless, this was an incredible time of peace for the people under Solomon's rule. Imagine what it would have been like. Sit back, you can read that and think, what would it have been like to be in Solomon's kingdom at this time? No wars, no fighting, very prosperous kingdom, which we'll hear, hear about just now. Imagine being a citizen of that kingdom. And that's what I want to build up on our minds, this idea of how incredible it was to be part of this kingdom that Solomon had built at this point, that God was in charge of this kingdom. But we have something very profound that Jesus says, though, in the New Testament. And it's in Matthew 12, verse 42. Jesus does talk about the kingdom of Solomon. And he says in Matthew 12, verse 42, the queen of the south, so the queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation, so talking to the Pharisees, those who are asking for, for miracle, miraculous signs, will rise of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. One greater than Solomon is here, referring to himself. Something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus and his kingdom on earth now, his kingdom he established, is greater than Solomon's kingdom. So just by way of comparison for a moment, just to grasp it a bit more, how incredible this really is then, that we're part of a kingdom which is much greater than Solomon's kingdom, Let's think about the glory of Solomon's kingdom for a moment. It was said of Solomon's kingdom, we'll flick back to the first kings there, it was said of his kingdom that half of the known gold in the ancient world, he owned half the gold of the ancient world. And he was the richest man ever, it was said. Here's the top three richest people apparently to have ever lived. Now you're going to get different views on this depending on where you look this up, but it is said though, and I'll back this up in a moment, about the top three richest people who've ever lived. Number three, Mansa Musa, he was said to have been uh, owned about 400 billion in reserves and assets and so on. He lived from 1280 to 1337. He was the 10th Mansa, um, which Mansa means king of kings, and he was part of the Malian Empire. So he's the third richest, third richest person ever to have lived. The second richest person to ever have lived, you'll know this name I would imagine, John Rockefeller. He was said to have been worth about 663 billion pounds. Wow. And he lived from 1839 to 1937. He was the founder of the Standard Oil Company. And we probably can find out a lot about him online. But he's the second richest. So the richest person, supposedly, to ever have lived, if you look this up, King Solomon. King Solomon was said to be the richest person he ever lived. And he was worth, so think of what the last person was worth, 2.1 trillion pounds, or, or maybe that's in dollars, but 2.1 trillion. He lived between 970 and 931 B.C. 
Let's go and look at 1 Kings chapter 10. How can we say that he was that rich? And possibly the richest person to ever, ever, ever have lived. Because there is a dispute about that. But 1 Kings 10 and in verse 14 tells us, The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 um, beckers of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. Um, we'll not read all through all of this, but if you go down to 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world saw audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God put in his heart. Year after year, everyone came who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, and spices and horses and mules. Solomon, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as the sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew, the royal merchants purchased them from Kew. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150 um, and it talks about them exporting. But it goes on to tell you how incredibly rich and how much Solomon's had in his kingdom. And then it just seemed like everyone kept bringing him more. So it was, a, it was a nice little scenario we had going on there. I'm so great. You're so great. People keep bringing you more things to make you even greater. It's such a, a wonderful um, little circle he had going on there. But here's the way it is. It says that he had 666 talents of gold. Now that's it's a funny number, isn't it? 666. But 18,125 kilograms of gold that is. And it says also there that he got 25 tons of gold brought to him every year. So this is where the this is where the money comes in. The 25 tons of gold every year. One ton in today's money of gold would be worth 64.3 million dollars. So one ton of gold today, 64.3 million. So he got that every every year. 25 tons of gold every year. So 25 tons every year. So 25 times 40 years that he reigned. So 25 tons every year times the 40 years that he reigned, 64 billion. Oh, sorry, I just moved my phone there. 64 billion. And that was just part of what he got. So that's the measurements that tell us why he had $2.1 trillion or pounds, the richest man he ever lived. So this was the glory of his kingdom. Here's the point and why I've just told us all that. God's kingdom through Jesus, Jesus said it himself in Matthew 12, is exponentially greater. His wisdom, the wealth, the abundance of his kingdom is exponentially, not measurably, not even measurably, greater than Solomon's. And we're part of that kingdom. We have to reflect on that. We belong to a greater kingdom and a greater king than they did under the time of Solomon. Even though he may have been the wealthiest man, the wealthiest kingdom that there ever was. Our king is not just very wise. He's the very wisdom of God, Jesus himself. Our king rules over all of the earth, not a portion, not a part of it, not most of it, but all of the earth. He's vast riches over of everything. He owns all of the world, all the riches of the world. At the point about our king in terms of his intentionality and what he came to bring is our king came to bring his peace, rest and hope. That was his goal. That's his purpose is not to make more and make more finances. He doesn't need it from any of us, but his purpose as our king is to come to bring his peace, rest and hope. So the point in all of this is if we belong to the Jesus kingdom, we have nothing to fear. We don't need to worry about what country we live in, the politics of that country, the rules and laws of that country. I'm not saying we don't follow them, but we don't need to worry about them. 
We don't need to worry, and this is a hard one right now, we don't need to worry about the economy because of the kingdom that we're part of. We don't need to worry about other nations. Jesus is king, he's reigning, and we belong to him. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have transient difficulties because of rulers and laws and economy. We may have, but we belong to a kingdom that overarches all of that, that overrides all of that, so that we don't need to worry. So it's such a thing to help us focus on the grandeur of Solomon's kingdom and to think that Jesus said, I, a greater king has come. We follow that king and his kingdom and God's rule through Jesus, meaning we do not need to worry. We might not always see the visible that helps us not worry, but we can focus on the realities of what Jesus said and he being our king. The other thing I want us to really think about with this and the idea of kingdom and the kingdom that we're part of is the idea that, as Jesus said, he's a greater king than Solomon, which we all acknowledge, but people flock to see Solomon. Look at the Queen of Sheba was admired by Jesus who went from the ends of the earth to hear of Solomon's wisdom. But Jesus was greater than Solomon. And yet, Jesus amongst all the people was rejected. And that's what he was saying. You'll only accept me if I show you a miraculous sign. Look at how far the Queen of Sheba went to see the wisdom of Solomon and yet I'm right in front of you and you're ignoring me. You're rejecting me. And yet Jesus came physically to the people. He's came to us. The question we have to ask ourselves when we think of all the grandeur and the wisdom and the, the kingship of Jesus is, are we flocking to Jesus? Do we make the effort to see Jesus the way the Queen of Sheba made to see Solomon? Do we flock to him and make every effort to get to him? Even as Christians today who have a relationship with Jesus, do we give all we have to be close to him, to be closer still to him, to spend time with him? On that subject of seeking, a few more sort of things for us to think about. Do we see the glory of our king and want to belong to his kingdom? Here's what you'll notice if we do. And it's just take an honest inventory of our lives. If we do value him as our king and his kingdom, we will seek him and his kingdom above everything else. If, if we really value Jesus as our king and his kingdom, we will seek his kingdom and him above everything else. If we're not seeking the Lord and his kingdom first, it would be a sign, I have to say this, and I've said this to myself over the years, that it would be a sign that I don't value his kingdom enough. If it's not first, if I don't seek it first, I don't value it first. And it is something I need to think about. We all need to think about, that am I appreciating Jesus the way he should be appreciated as God and his kingdom ruling in my life? And if we're not seeking his kingdom first, this is the reality I've discovered this so many times for myself, I'm no doubt valuing something else more than his kingdom and it's often the case i'm likely valuing my own kingdom my own rules and i make myself in charge instead of him do we value what jesus is offering us we'll look at a couple of more scriptures to finish here philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us let's see philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us we but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the lord jesus christ our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await Jesus, our Savior, from there. And then the last scripture in reference to what I was just saying about appreciating his kingdom, appreciating his rule as our king. Matthew 6, we'll know this one, verse 33, which has been cut out of my Bible. Would you believe it? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and I'll give you all other things. I've 
paraphrase that a little bit. It's actually ripped out of my Bible. I don't know what child has been out of my Bible. The only page in the whole Bible. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all other things will be given to you. So in other words, don't worry about all these things. That's in that passage. Do not worry about what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Don't worry about the minuscule things and try not to worry even about the bigger things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. So this is what we can do. Because of the greatness of Jesus versus Solomon, the wonderful incredible quality of Solomon's kingdom has been surpassed by the kingdom that we are part of and the king that we follow. Do we, does our life show that it is top priority in our life? Just want to leave us with three questions on this so I don't go on too long here. First question is how much do you value, how much value do we place in God's kingdom in our, and how do, is this shown in our lives? I like practical questions. We can ask questions like how much value do we place in God's kingdom? For me to help me with that, I need to think, well, what does my life say? So what would our life say about the value we place on God's kingdom in our lives? The second question is, how can the greatness of Jesus and his kingdom and what awaits help us not to worry? So the greatness of Jesus' kingdom and being our king, how can the knowledge of that and being aware of that help us help us not to worry? Because I'm sure we agree there's so many things that we can worry about. And the last question, what prevents us from seeking Jesus and his kingdom first? Just to do an honest assessment of where we're at, what is it that stops us from seeking his kingdom and Jesus first because there's so many things can get in the way of that and I don't want us to fall foul to what Jesus said to the Pharisees who are looking for more miracles and wanted more razzmatazz if you like. He's like, well, look look at the effort Queen of Sheba went to to see Solomon. What effort do you go to to see me? And do we get too used to that as older Christians? We kind of can take it for granted. So that's just some thoughts today on the power, the power of God's kingdom. I hope that some of that's helped us. Um, please let me know your thoughts and say, let me know through my channel uh, or through Malcolm. Appreciate Malcolm asking me to do these videos. I hope at some point maybe I can see some of you in person. Uh, and I'd love to dialogue and interact with some of you. So please reach out. Um, I know some of you there and some of you I maybe don't know. Uh, I really do hope some of these things are benefits. And God bless to you all.